everyone, and welcome to What About the Canadians, a podcast about Canadian history. My name is Shauna. And my name is Ashley. And we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season, we'll be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we will examine the battles the Canadians served in. We last left the boys as they were coming over to France and Belgium for their first major engagement. So this brings us to the Second Battle of Ypres. This battle was way more complicated than I was expecting, and there was so much more detail in this battle than I than I could really handle. Uh, oh, me too. Like, my right eye was twitching as I was researching <laughs> this. I've like, I have a whiskey here in front of me to help calm my nerves, Shauna. <laughs> It's so intense. <laughs> Gosh, imagine if you actually had to be over there with them. What would you be doing then? <laughs> I'd be going after that rum ration is what I would be doing. <laughs> Are we sure we want to talk about World War I for our first season? <laughs> no, no, it's way too much. <laughs> I'm kidding. I love it. It's great, but really confusing. So I think we did our best in this battle to figure out what we should leave in and what we should just forget about because there was way too much. But um, so just stick with us and see how we did. We'll get it. We'll get it. <laughs> I have every confidence, Shauna. Oh, good. I'm glad you do. <laughs> so just a little note about this episode. It's mostly PG. But uh, it can get a little bit of gra- a little bit graphic at times with some of the quotes. So we'll warn you when that part starts up because it gets a little bit violent. But we are talking about war, so I think it's kind of a given. But just in case you're a little bit sensitive, we'll jump in there with a warning. Sounds good. Take it away. No, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Let's start off with where Ypres actually is. The city of Ypres is in the northwestern part of Belgium, close to the French border, and it was originally part of the outlying part of Dunkirk. It's a medieval city that became prosperous because of cloth weaving and the cloth trade. In the 14th century, the population was close to 80,000 people. But after a siege by the English in 1383 and repeated attacks by the French, by the 16th century, the population had dwindled to about 5,000. Oh, Wow, that's a huge drop. Yeah, nobody wanted to be there. I mean, well, who would want to stay in a place where you keep getting attacked, I guess? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I obviously wouldn't. <laughs> but there's still people there now, and they kept getting attacked after that, too. Some people like to live dangerously, Shauna. I guess so. But the whole city is actually really pretty amazing since they had to rebuild it so much over the years. They're very resilient people, these Belgians. Um, so they had to rebuild it from all the bombings and the battles that happened during specifically World War I. And it was enough to reduce it to pretty much rubble. There wasn't a whole lot left after World War I. And after the war, the materials were pretty scarce. So they had to rebuild with what they had. And there were actually still a lot of people there that either had nowhere else to go or they wanted to stay there because that was their home. So they had to turn their city into a city again. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you rebuild when you got nothing to go from. (laughs) Yeah. So when you visit Ypres now, what you're actually seeing are World War I scars of bullets and bombs on a ton of the buildings there, like the Cloth Hall and St. Martin's Cathedral. You can stand there and see all these pock marks all over the place. Um, and we'll put some pictures up on our show notes of the difference. You can see the before and after. It's, you know, you can see clear across the city in one of the pictures, and there's a city there in the other one. It's really pretty cool what they did. Yeah, the contrast is quite stark. Like, um, I was watching a YouTube video on St. Martin's Cathedral, um, and behind sort of the cathedral, you can see, like, remnants of the old church where, like, they had deliberately left, like, broken columns in place as just this reminder of what 
the city had gone through. Yeah, there's reminders all over that place. Yeah. I highly recommend visiting if you can. Absolutely. And when you're there, you go and you get gelato. Gelato. I was going to say sorbet and I'm like, oh. no, that's not right. <laughs> it's not the right word. No, it's gelato. <laughs> it was delicious. It was. I remember I had raspberry gelato and I think that was my first real introduction to gelato and it stuck with me. I do not remember what I had. <laughs> All I know is it was delicious. Yes. <laughs> okay, so maybe we should stop talking about food and <laughs> jump into the war. Okay. <laughs> so is that is that my cue? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, okay. You go ahead. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Um, so for our listeners, you might be wondering, how is it that we are already into the second battle of Ypres? What the heck happened to the first? And did we miss an episode? Don't worry, you didn't miss an episode. I mean, really, we're on episode two, so it would have been hard to do. (laughs) So (laughs) you're okay. We're on track. It's okay. That's right. But um, it is important to remember that Europe had already been at war for a few months by the time the Canadians made their way to the front lines. Now, we last left off with the German and Allied forces going head-to-head in a series of skirmishes extending from the Swiss Alps up to the North Sea, leading them to fortify a 760-kilometer line of trenches, and we now call this uh, activity sort of that race to the sea. And really, what was the last town in Belgium before you hit the North Sea? You guessed it. Ibra. (laughs) Ibra. This poor town. (laughs) Good gracious. (laughs) So after losing the city of Antwerp to the Germans, the Allied forces withdrew further back into Belgium territory to the town of Ypres in October of 1914. But wasting no time, the Germans launched their first offensive on the 19th, with the intention of capturing the town along with important seaports. Now, over the course of a month, several assaults were made by the German forces, but the Allies' resistance was actually pretty steadfast, and little ground was gained by the Germans. So by November, I mean, the weather had turned, ammunition supplies were running low, and both sides had suffered heavy losses. So the Germans retracted their offensive plans, at least temporarily, to sort of regroup. So this first Battle of Ypres resulted in a salient being formed around the town. Now, I like to think of it as just imagine this 27-kilometer-long semicircle or arc of trenches encompassing the north, east, and south side of Ypres. That's how you like to imagine it? I think that's what it was, Ash. I like to imagine it as like a pregnant belly around a city. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I'm just telling you, like, imagine it as half sem- like a semicircle. <laughs> Maybe some listeners don't know, Shauna. No, I know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe imagine was the wrong word. <laughs> Um, So the obvious disadvantage for the Allies was that they were surrounded on three fronts. And just to sort of add that icing on the cake, the Germans largely held the high ground so they could see all of their movements. Now, from a strategic perspective, protecting Ypres kind of made little sense. It actually would have been more effective to withdraw behind Ypres just to create like a straight line of trenches because it does take fewer soldiers and resources to defend it. However, Ypres was sort of this last remaining Belgium town that was still in the hands of the Allies. And actually, it's funny that you said that Britain invaded Belgium back in the, I think it was the 1300s. Because if we jump forward a few hundred years, Britain actually had pretty close ties with the city because they would send their wool to Ypres to have it to be made into cloth. Like, of course. Well, over a hundred, well, a couple hundred years, you can work on your diplomacy a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so uh, like Shauna had kind of said, Ypres, it was, it's only 15 kilometers from the French border. So it was that last remaining town. So losing Belgium as a whole would have been a huge blow to morale for the Allies and that huge boost for the Germans. So that's the first battle of Ypres. And now Sean is going to take us into the second. All right. So when the Canadians came to Ypres, for the most part, it was their first exposure to war or really any sort of fighting. Some of them were British veterans from the Boer War or career soldiers, but generally very few of the men had seen any combat. So it was really trial by fire for them. They were sent into the trenches that were dug by the French, who had been in the area since the beginning. Unfortunately, the French had different values and objectives than what was actually happening at the time. The French wanted to be ready for a heavy offensive and moving forward, so making secure and more permanent trenches wasn't something they were interested in. They didn't want to think that they were going to be there for any period of time. So because of this, there's a whole laundry list of reasons that the Canadians were pretty upset with their accommodations. So here's that list. Their trenches were shallow and unconnected. The parapets, which are the sandbags or mounds of dirt that are in front of the trenches, those were only about two feet high and were rarely thick enough to stop bullets. There was no peridot, which is the bank of earth behind a trench that gives protection against shells um, that fall behind the lines. There were no traverses or zigzags in the trenches, and that reduces the damage of a direct artillery hit that can travel down the line. The dugouts were bad. They were shallow and barely protected from the weather. The support trenches weren't finished. The holes and side trenches were used as latrines. And bodies were buried in shallow graves. And sometimes they weren't buried. Actually, most of the time, let's be honest, they weren't buried. And some were buried in the parapets. And they were partially exposed because nobody had any time to clear no man's land. There's actually an account where... A poor man was buried in one of the parapets and his hand was dangling out and men would go by and shake his hand as they walked. Yeah, I I saw a picture the other day of um, two soldiers holding like a skull in their hand and it looked like they were preparing to play Hamlet in like a Shakespearean play. I think it just, unfortunately, you you become desensitized. Yeah, I guess you got to take a little bit of humor when you can. Yeah, it can get you through a lot. Yeah. So all in all, the conditions were disgusting. The rats were eating corpses, which were absolutely everywhere. And it was a breeding ground for disease. And the smell of death was constantly hanging in the air. And an official report said that large quantities of disinfectant should be sent to the trenches immediately for liberal use. Which I think is probably a fair thing to say about any trench. You'd want to disinfect that, but I guess especially with this one. Well, I was going to say we use disinfectant just for COVID. I think they need more than disinfectant. (laughs) Like, I don't think there's anything that can fix that. No, no, I don't know what they were planning on doing with the disinfectant. Like, they didn't have Lysol wipes to just go through and wipe it down. Did they just, like, flood the trenches? Uh, I don't think you'd want to flood them because then they'd be Well, with disinfectant. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) This river of Lysol. (laughs) Watch out, boys. (laughs) Well, they get out of the trench first. (laughs) Yeah. So on top of a not-so-warm welcome to the front, the Canadians were the ones expected to upgrade the trenches. But I would guess that they were probably pretty happy to do it so they didn't have to live in that squalor. Mm -hmm. But thankfully for the officers, at least... The general headquarters, or the GHQ line, was in better condition than the forward trenches, and it was about one to three miles behind the Canadian lines from Zillebeck Lake to a half a mile east of Welch, where where it turned northwest to Mauser Ridge. All right. So now if there was any expectation amongst the soldiers that the military strategies employed in the semi-recent 19th century wars would be effective in the modern age, they were served a harsh dose of reality at Ypres. So many describe World War I as a clash between 20th century technology and 19th century warfare. 
Now, in some future episodes, we will see the horrendous aftermath that resulted from the reluctance of many Allied commanders to adapt. But for the veterans on the front lines, seeing a battlefield aligned with barbed wire, protected by heavy artillery and the awesome yet deadly power of the machine gun was completely foreign to them. And it is at Ypres that we see the first use of an unexpected and deadly weapon being tested on the Allies. So in the latter part of the 19th century, there was growing international concern over the use of chemical weapons. And at the 1899 Hague Convention, 26 countries, including Germany, France, and Britain, signed a resolution forbidding the use of asphyxiating or deleterious gases. I have a question, Ash. What? Oh, no. (laughs) It's okay. Okay. Do you know why in 1899 they were concerned about asphyxiating gases? I do. Awesome. Good good timing. Thanks. (laughs) So, um, I'll, I'll just, um, give you a little back history. So the use of toxic agents like as a weapon was not really a novel invention by the 19th century. Um, Historians actually trace the use of toxic agents as far back as 600 BCE. So this is when I guess Athenians tainted water supplies with poisonous plants. So jumping forward to the 19th century, you do have the rapid expansion of industrial chemistry, and there was some concern that more toxic, potent agents would be used um, to incapacitate one's enemy in what some called a wholly uncivilized and cruel manner. So I Whoa, think- that's a good answer. Oh, good. I'm glad you're satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> I am. And you know what? Actually, I... I was reading something completely unrelated and I can't remember what it was. Or maybe I was listening to a podcast. So this could be completely untrue because I can't actually remember where I heard it. But I heard that in medieval times, like during the plague, they would throw bodies, like catapult bodies or throw bodies over the wall that had the plague into their enemy fortresses. Yes, I think I've heard that too. Like biological weaponry warfare, whatever you call it. I was sophisticated something. <laughs> uh, anyway. All right, I'm moving on. Okay, um, go. So, of course, um, you know, desperate times always call for desperate measures. Um, and there's always going to be some kind of loophole in every agreement to justify your actions. So the first country to test the waters um, with these agents was actually France. Now, France had the most developed chemical weapons program at the time, and they made use of their pre-war developments by bringing in its store of tear gas projectiles. Now, the physical effects actually didn't really cause much of a problem. It was just like a minor irritation on the Germans. But really, it was its political impacts that were far more devastating because I mean, it was now seen as fair game, like they essentially opened Pandora's box. So um, after Germany's defeat at the Battle of the Marne in September of 1914, um, and just for your reference, like the last episode, we did speak about how the French and British pushed back the German advance, um, just like I think it was outside of Paris, effectively putting an end to the Schlieffen plan. And this was actually called the Battle of Marne, but I don't think we actually used that that name in the first episode. So um, anyway, um, after this battle, the German High Command commissioned a group of scientists to develop their own chemical weapon. So they first filled a howitzer shell with an agent known to cause violent sneezing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But when used against the British the following October, it was reported that the gas had no effect. Well, I'm sorry, they couldn't hear the sneezes from the other trench? (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, don't make them sneeze, they'll run out of Kleenex. (laughs) And hand sanitizer, because it's being used to clean the trenches. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, we're on to plan number two. So this is the second 
big idea, uh, was to use a type of liquid tear gas that vaporizes when the shell explodes. However, the liquid doesn't vaporize in cold temperatures. So its use on the Russians in January of 1915 <laughs> was basically useless. <laughs> Somebody did not think that one through. Who got fired for that plan? They didn't understand the assignment, Shauna. <laughs> I get the reference now, sort of. <laughs> I still don't TikTok. That's okay. Your daughter will catch you up probably in a few years. TikTok probably won't exist by then. Anyway, so the German high command was like, you gotta give us something other than the violent sneezing. It's <laughs> it's just not working. It's not enough. <laughs> so they turned to a man by the name of Dr. Fritz Haber. Now, Haber was the director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin. And he made a very bold decision to test the use of chlorine. Now, for the Germans, there were some very clear advantages to using chlorine gas. So first, it is inexpensive to produce, and it was already widely available in large supply because of its use in the dye industry. Uh, second, it can be easily transported. Third, it doesn't leave any trace elements. So assuming all conditions are perfect, it shouldn't affect the soldiers advancing behind it, uh, assuming they're far enough behind it. And then fourth, it is highly, highly effective in destabilizing your enemy. So exposure to chlorine can immediately damage your respiratory system, and in high concentrations, it will cause death. So clearly, the suffering of others is really of no regard to this man. Like, forget the Hague Convention. Taking it to the next level here. But um, Haber was a little smarter than his predecessors in that he knew it would be more effective to release the gas from cylinders and let it roll over the battlefield. But I mean, despite its effectiveness, it's still a fickle weapon because you need to wait for optimal wind conditions before you release it because you really don't want it blowing back in your face. But because of its moral implications, many German generals refused to use the gas. So the German high command had to kind of find that one guy with his, like that chip on his shoulder <laughs> that would be willing to test out the new weapon. And that happened to be Duke Albrecht of Wittenberg, whose army who had been halted at the first battle of Ypres. So that takes us to the second battle of Ypres. All right, Ash. So we've broken down the episode now, from now on. <laughs> well, we haven't broken it down. The Second Battle of Ypres is generally broken down into four battles. Gravenstoffel, Saint-Julien, Fresenberg, and Belouard. So let's start with Gravenstoffel. There had been exchanges of fire since the beginning at Ypres, but on March 10th, things started to heat up, unbeknownst to the Allies. On that day, the Germans had moved 6,000 canisters of gas to a line near the village of Gellevelt. I think I don't think I said that right. You didn't say that quite with enough confidence. Jenna. No, there was no confidence there. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, they waited for a signal, but since Ypres was such a poor choice of location for using gas, because the winds had to be exactly perfect, like Ashley said, they couldn't use it there uh, because the winds at Ypres actually usually move west to east, and that would wipe out the Germans instead. So that signal at Gellivolt never came. Uh, the Germans decided to move the canisters to a new line in hopes of more favor favorable weather on the northern part of the salient between Steenstraat and Polkapel. By April, 5,730 canisters were in place. And again, they waited for the wind. So back in March, some German prisoners let the Allies know that they were ready to use the gas. But the French didn't seem to care very much, or they just didn't put any stock into it because they thought, you know, they hadn't seen lethal gas before. Um, and they didn't even actually tell the British who had taken over their lines. 
<laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Way to go. Awesome. But after that, there was a private named August Jaeger who snuck across no man's land to surrender. And he let the French know about the gas and that three red rockets would signal the release and that the Germans had cotton gauze soaked in a neutralizing solution so they wouldn't get gassed themselves. French divisional commander General Edmund Ferry was concerned. So he thinned out the forward line and shelled the Germans on that side to try to destroy the canisters. And he also sent a messenger to warn the 28th British Division and the Canadians. So at least the French were helping out this time. Ferry also sent a message to his superior officer, General Balfier. Balfier thought Ferry was gullible and ignored the recommendations completely. And he was even reprimanded for going around the chain of command to warn the British without letting his superior know first. Um, And for removing some of his troops from the forward lines. Unfortunately for Ferry, Falk, General Falk, dismissed him in an attempt to cover up the poor response to the leaked information when it actually turned out to be true. So after multiple warnings about the gas, the Canadians started hearing rumors about the attack, even though the higher-ups were trying to keep it pretty hush-hush. But the cheeky Canadians put up a sign written in German that said, you may have a long wait for the right wind to blow. (laughs) Right in front of their, their trenches there. In addition to warnings from the prisoners and Jaeger that some sort of attack was imminent, there were other signs like nightly rumblings of wheels, uh, more German aircraft, new battery positions, and the Allied sentries even saw the pipes being installed in the German parapets. But somehow these weren't considered suspicious at all. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) No, that wouldn't be weird. So they, this might have been a sign of how inexperienced the Canadians actually were. Um, they didn't know what to look for because they had never seen anything like this before. So along car comes Arthur Curry, who ends up being pretty important during the war. And he took the threat seriously and repeatedly fired artillery along the German lines in an attempt to blow up or at least expose the position of the cylinders. But unfortunately, he was firing in the wrong area. And they were further to the north than his position. So on April 20th, the Germans started their bombardment of Ypres. They absolutely decimated the town, even more than it already was, which put everyone more on edge. But they couldn't put their full plan into motion because they were still waiting on the wind. That's the one weakness of this gas for sure. Right. But they got their favorable wind on the afternoon of April 22nd. The Germans started an artillery uh, artillery bombardment, that's hard to say, (laughs) on the French trenches. And remember, the French are just beside the Canadians. And everything had to be exactly perfect for the Germans because they only gave respirators to their leading troops. So anyone behind them, if they walk into the gas, they're done. Or if the wind changed at all, or if they moved too quickly. They ran the risk of losing a ton of men to the gas. So it was a big gamble. At 5 p.m., the cylinders between Steenstraat to the east and Landmark were released, and they released 180,000 kilograms of chlorine gas. By 5.20, it was safe for the Germans to go over the top and start their rush towards the French trenches with bayonets. When the gas came creeping across no man's land, it looked like a yellow-green cloud slowly gliding toward the Allied lines. And the really important thing to remember here is that No one knew what was going to happen. Nobody had ever seen this before. It was completely novel. So they couldn't predict how it was going to affect the soldiers. So this attack was on the north part of the salient, squarely aimed at the French and the Algerians. The gas had consequences that had never been seen, and since the frontline soldiers of both sides didn't know what to expect, the results were all the more terrifying. I wanted to explain what happened and what those men saw, but it was hard to put into my own words, so I think the best way to explain the effects of the gas is to use first-hand accounts. This is the part where it might get a little graphics for someone who is sensitive to that sort of thing, so if you want to pause and skip ahead, now would be the time. Here is Canadian A.T. Hunter. Then passive curiosity turned into active torment, a burning sensation in the head, red-hot needles in the lungs, the throat seized as by a strangler. Many fell and died on the spot. The others grasping, stumbling with faces contorted, hands widely gesticulating, and uttering hoarse cries of pain. 
fled madly through the villages and farms and through Ypres itself, carrying panic to the remnants of the civilian population and filling the roads with fugitives of both sexes and all ages. Here's a quote from Willie Siebert. He was a German soldier, and this is what he saw when he came over the lines. What we saw was total death. Nothing was alive. All of the animals had come out of their holes to die. Dead rabbits, moles, and rats, and mice were everywhere. The smell of the gas was still in the air. It hung on the few bushes which were left. When we got to the French lines, the trenches were empty, but in half a mile, the bodies of the French soldiers were everywhere. It was unbelievable. Then we saw there were some English. You could see that where men had clawed at their faces and throats, trying to get breath. Some had shot themselves. The horses, still in the stables, cows, chickens, and everything, all were dead. Everything, even the insects, were dead. And here's one more quote from another Canadian soldier. I don't know his name, but it's from the Tim Cook book, At the Sharp End. The wheezing and frothing from his mouth, like that of a horribly bloated bullfrog, the dilated eyeballs, the pond scum green discoloration of face and neck, and the gurgling sound issuing from his throat, ironically simulating the hissing of escaping gas cylinders. The Germans, following the path of the mostly dissipated gas, systematically moved through the French trench with little to no resistance, since those that were gassed were either dead or soon to be dead, or those lucky enough to have not breathed in the gas had mostly retreated. Because the lines had been completely broken, the Canadians, just to the side of the French and Algerians, had to step up to close the gap and prevent the Germans from advancing any further. There were plans to blow the bridges at Ypres Canal, but that would sacrifice three full British divisions and what was left of the two French, and probably lose the entire salient for the Allies. But this was a last resort and showed how desperate things were becoming. Whoa, this is getting serious, hey? I was going to say that was rather poignant. Yeah, and it was, uh, you know, it was hard to read. Mm. But I think that really kind of hits home. Well, not hits home, but hits the point of how serious this actually was. Mm -hmm. So any success rested on the Canadians. They were ordered to launch a counterattack on Kitchener's Wood. Side note, a lot of people think that Kitchener's Wood was named for Lord Kitchener. I was going to say, I'm one of those people. <laughs> no, you're wrong. <laughs> it was actually named that because that's where the French kept their cooks so they could move food to the front. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's their kitchen. <laughs> that was aptly named, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a patch of woods that was an area about two and a half hectares that was about 1,500 meters west of St. Julian and four and a half kilometers north of Ypres. So to keep our geography in check, the Germans were moving south to cut off the salient. It was high ground that looked into St. Julian and the Canadian and the Canadian lines. So if the Germans still held it by daylight, it would have been absolutely disastrous. On top of all the poor planning and scrambling that led to the raid on Kitchener's Wood, the higher ups and actually no one on the Allied side knew how many Germans were in Kitchener's Wood or what their positions were. So for this attack, they used the reserve forces, the 16th Battalion, which was a Scottish kilted unit, and the 10th Battalion, which was mostly Calgarian, to basically go in blind. Highlander J.E. Lockerbie, who was 19 19 years old and a bank clerk from PEI, said, Our officer remarked very casually that we were going to attack the wood and drive the Germans back at the point of the bayonet. Everybody seemed pleased with the idea of it. Talk like this showed how inexperienced and naive the Canadians were, or maybe just how confident they were. Before midnight, they formed their unit into eight waves that were shoulder to shoulder, which seems really like a bad idea. Because if a machine gunner or a sniper or anybody caught wind of that, they could just mow them down like grass. So as they advanced, they ran into a fence that nobody knew was there. And so the Germans heard them and they sent up flares and they could see everything. And it was completely detrimental to any plan that they had. So when the bullets started flying, the Canadian officers ordered a bayonet charge. All of the officers charging were killed or wounded within 75 yards of the Germans. 
By the time they made it to the wood, the Canadians were looking for revenge for the slaughter they had just maneuvered through and refused to take prisoners. After multiple Germans were found executed, they were cautioned against dealing harshly with the prisoners. Mm. So everyone was scattered and confused and exhausted and without any communication lines. But they all knew that once the Germans got themselves together, they would try to push the Canadians off the high ground again. So being scattered without any officers, some dug in on the south side, but some continued through the trees to set up defenses on the other side. And they even actually recovered four stolen artillery pieces, and they dug in 900 meters into enemy territory. By the morning of April 23rd, the 10th had only five officers and 188 soldiers, and the 16th also had only five officers and 260 soldiers. They lost two-thirds of their 1,600 men that they had gone in with. This was absolutely devastating to the Canadian numbers, but it was just a setback to the Germans. They continued west and south in an attempt to cut off the salient. They were trying to get across the Iser Canal and towards Mauser Ridge, which ran east to west and was another bit of high ground that overlooked most of the salient. Again, the Canadians were put into action in a counterattack on Mauser Ridge. It was supposed to be supported by two French battalions on their flank, but the French just couldn't muster their men. They didn't have enough. They didn't have the energy. The French were basically out of it. So I can't really blame them for, you know, leaving the Canadians high and dry, but it really kind of screwed them over. Uh, The sun was beginning to rise, and they had to cross about 1,500 meters in bare ground in daylight, and they didn't have any of the sport that they were expecting to have. They fought most of the day, but mostly just ended up being fodder. Tim Cook, I had mentioned him earlier, he wrote at the sharp end, and he's a military historian. And he said, uh, he was one of my main sources, he said, no two imperial battalions could have done better than the first and the fourth, but these battalions should not have been ordered to throw themselves into the maw of battle, creating a buffer zone with their own bodies. So again, sorry, we're getting really serious here. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 12 hours after the first gas attack, the Canadians had lost over 2,100 men. And they wow. still weren't done yet. But this battle is getting close to being over, so Ashley can take over in a second. <laughs> 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 On April 23rd, through constant artillery barrage and firing, the Canadians brought up reinforcements to fill a three-kilometer gap between Kitchener's Wood and Mauser Ridge. Early in the morning, the 2nd Battalion was moved to the southeast edge of Kitchener's Wood to relieve the 10th and the 16th that had been stuck there, and their numbers were completely dwindling. So men from the 2nd were ordered across a misty open field, but they got about halfway through and the sun rose and the mist lifted, leaving them completely exposed. And this seems like a pretty constant theme. Like, send men into a big open field when the sun's rising. It seems like (laughs) horrible planning, but, I mean, here's me being an armchair expert saying, yeah, don't do that. I realize there's a lot of open fields, and you can't always choose where you're going to fight, but this is a bad idea. The only cover these poor men had was knee-high mustard grass. So they ended up crawling around in the grass, face down, basically, And some of them ended up going in circles because they couldn't look up or else they'd lose their heads. Eventually, most of them found their way to the edge of the grass. But when they got there, they realized they had to cross about 15 meters of completely open ground, not even that grass to hide in, to reach their forward line. Which doesn't seem like very far, but if you have snipers looking for an easy target, it might as well be 15 kilometers. They're going to pick you off pretty easily. Some of them mustered their courage and made a dash for it. They found the others wounded and exhausted, and they exchanged fire for about two hours, but realized they needed to pull out before they just became complete sitting ducks and were picked off one by one. But doing that meant risking that 15-meter gap again. And this time the Germans had set up a machine gun, so the chances of making it through were very slim, and very few made it back through. By noon on April 23rd, The Canadians had dug in and formed a defensive line to protect against fire coming from Kitchener's Wood, but it wasn't very well organized. The some 14,000 Canadians that were left were mostly groups of soldiers that were separated from their officers, and the fighting was mostly isolated units making their own decisions. 
But despite the confusion, this defense line was mostly stabilized. These men were exhausted and most of them hadn't slept or eaten for two days. So what a welcome to the war that would have been. Mm-hmm. New orders were given by the German high command to advance through the Canadian front lines to Zonnebeck Ridge, which was about one and a half kilometers south of the Gravenstoffel Ridge, and capture the small hamlet of St. Julien. So basically, the Germans were trying to cut off the northeast corner of the, of the salient by simultaneously advancing troops on the north side in an attempt to encircle the salient, therefore preventing any retreat of any Allied forces. Now, before we go further into the Battle of St. Julien, um, it can be really confusing about what is where, who is who, so I'm just going to give you another quick overview of the lay of the land. So remember the Canadians are occupying sort of that northeast corner of the salient. Now, running through the middle of the Canadian-held territory is Polkapel Road. On the left-hand side of the road, we have the 3rd Brigade led by Brigadier General Ernest Turner. And now on the right-hand side, we have the 2nd Brigade led by Brigadier General Arthur Curry. Now, behind the Canadian front lines, you have of course, which uh, Shauna described was Kitchener Wood, and that's located on the far left. And then we have St. Julien, uh, Locality C, which is located in front of the Gravenstoffel Ridge, and then Gravenstoffel itself. And of course, throughout the whole salient, you have your artillery, your reserves, your general headquarters, all that good stuff. Ash, I just got to say that in our sources, we found a really great animated map that shows you where everything fell and how it adjusted in the salient. So that might be really helpful for people that are super confused like we were. <laughs> totally. So we'll put that link in the show notes, I yeah. think. <laughs> so at 4 a.m. on the 24th of April, the Germans released a second wave of chlorine gas along a 1,200-yard front opposite of the 15th Battalion of the 3rd Brigade and the 8th Battalion of the 2nd Brigade. So again, we're talking about that center position along the Polkapel Road. Now again, that cloud of that greenish-yellow gas reaching heights of 10 to 15 feet and moving at a pace of 5 to 6 miles an hour rolled towards them. Now, despite this completely alarming sight, it was said that most of the Canadians had remained relatively calm. I think in part this was because they knew the second wave of gas was coming and because they had some protective measures against the gas. Namely, they were dousing a cloth either in water or urine to, dilute, to basically dilute the effect. But um, unfortunately, I mean, it kind of depended on quotes I read, but it seemed like overall it wasn't all that effective. I can't think it <laughs> wouldn't it be, no. No, I, maybe it was better than nothing. I'm not sure. Um, but the 2nd Brigade um, put up a fierce resistance uh, with support from the 2nd Field Artillery Brigade. The Canadians in the front lines opened fire on the approaching Germans with their rifles and what machine guns they had available. Now, what I'm about to say should come as no surprise to our listeners, or at least I'm hoping we have a listener <laughs> at this point. Hi, Mom! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the Canadian soldiers holding the front lines, their Ross rifles jammed. So thank you again, Mr. Sam Hughes. <laughs> so they had to strike the bolt of their heel, you know, with those really sturdy cardboard boots to, like, pry it open. So instead of firing, like, 10 to 15 rounds a minute, they were firing maybe two or three. <laughs> I'm exaggerating on the I'm hoping by now they don't have those mm, cardboard boots. <laughs> now, a young soldier from Saskatchewan in the 5th Battalion said that he sat there just praying that the Germans were not going to come over the trenches because he was looking around for debris that he could use to protect himself. Like, can you oh, imagine God. like sitting there in the trenches and being like, yeah, this rock this rock might work. It's going like, to be better than my gun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, so now the Germans had advanced behind the rolling cloud of glass of chlorine, like by the thousands. 
because they had just assumed the gas was going to completely like wipe out the Canadians. They were so taken aback by the resistance coming from the 2nd Brigade that they had to halt their advancement. However, the soldiers of the 15th Battalion of the 3rd Brigade weren't so lucky because uh, they had been hit the hardest by the chlorine gas. Major Matthews observed that the trench presented this sort of weird spectacle. Men were coughing, spitting, cursing, and groveling on the ground, trying to vomit. While those who were able to fight, reacting to the order that the line must be held at all costs, they dragged themselves onto the parapet and waited for the enemy. Furthermore, the 3rd Field Artillery Brigade had been taken out of range prior to the battle, so they were the only battalion left with no artillery support. So, unfortunately, their position had been so greatly weakened that the Germans broke through, pushing 700 yards into Allied territory towards La pardon me, Locality C near Gravenstoffel Ridge. Now, the battalion commanders of the 3rd Brigade... Brig I'm having a hard time saying that word, Brigade. <laughs> That's okay. It's nothing compared to Gravenstoffel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Start again. So the battalion commanders of the 3rd Brigade, whose troops were manning the line between locality C and St. Julien, knew they were in trouble. And at 11 a.m., they ordered their troops to withdraw to a better defensive position south of the Gravenstoffel Ridge. Now, the 15th and 13th Battalions fell back with relative ease, but the two companies within the 7th Battalion were overrun and taken prisoner. Now, Lieutenant Eber Bellew, I think I'm saying that night, having been cut off from the 7th Battalion, continued to keep heavy machine gun fire on the Germans until his ammunition supplies ran dry. Having then to face the Germans toe-to-toe, -to -toe, he fought valiantly with only his bayonet available to him. I mean, eventually he was captured of a, as a prisoner of war, but he was the first officer in the Canadian Expeditionary Force to win the Victoria Cross. Oh, good for him. Yeah. I was actually surprised to hear that he lived through that. Yeah, that's intense. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting that. For the soldiers occupying the line between St. Julien and Kitchener's Wood, they too were overrun by the Germans. And with the withdrawal of the 3rd Brigade troops to their right, Whatever pockets of resistance were left defending St. Julian, they too were now surrounded on three fronts, and at 3 p.m., St. Julian fell into the German hands. So meanwhile, while all this is happening on the afternoon of the 24th, Brigadier General Ernest Turner, who again is the commander of the 3rd Brigade, received this message from headquarters to strengthen and hold the line. But through some sort of communication error, the general interpreted the command to mean to hold the GHQ line. Now, as Shauna mentioned, the GHQ line is the general headquarters line, which is basically kind of like a reserve line. It's not, it's not the front lines. So not only were reinforcements not being sent forward, he was commanding some of the units to draw back. <laughs> oh, no. And, and the, I see this time, I'm not going to talk about it again, but I see it time and time again. There's like these communication errors going on all throughout the field. It doesn't seem like anyone really knows where they're going. <laughs> <laughs> I also read somewhere that Turner was doing a terrible job on everything. So maybe it was just him. Maybe. Um, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, he had won the Victoria Cross in the Boer War. Yeah, but that was the Boer War. That's totally guess. different than what's going on here. I guess so. He wasn't having a good day. No, he was off. So luckily, um, British reinforcements had actually moved in in time to fill the gap that the 13th and 15th Divisions had created, therefore preventing the 2nd Brigade from being totally cut off. And of course, this gave the retiring 3rd Brigade... Uh, a much needed rest. So I, I guess it kind of worked out. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky for him. <laughs> now the second brigade, which again is the troops right of the Polkapel road, were still holding their position. British reinforcements arrived to fortify the eighth battalion's left flank that had been, had been exposed when the 15th battalion fell. But unfortunately, by this time, locality C had also fallen into German hands. So this brings us to the morning of April 25th. So quick summary, 2nd Brigade, they're holding their lines. They're fighting on. 
<laughs> for the most part. Third Brigade, they're continuously falling back. So come that morning, the Canadians were commanded to launch a counterattack at 4.30 a.m. to retake St. Julien and reconnect their trench lines as far northward as possible. Now, the launch didn't exactly come as a surprise. Um, the supporting artillery brigades had started the attack two hours early as they hadn't received communication that the attack had been postponed. <laughs> so the Germans were, were kind of waiting for the infantry to come. So by the, at 4.30, um, the British troops um, in support with the 10th Battalion so this was kind of more of a British advance, but it had supported the Canadians. Um, they did move forward, but they encountered heavy sniper and machine gun fire. Now, with the inev inevitable heavy casualties, the mission was reported as a failure at 9.15 in the morning. But it wasn't a complete lost. Um, they were able to link up with other British reinforcements camped out of that locality sea area. And this was enough to discourage a German counterattack at Premi attack, you know, at least for the next 10 days. Now, as for our second brigade, their defenses were starting to weaken because um, they had been under such a constant barrage by the Germans like this entire time. And they were getting particularly weak on that left flank that had been exposed. So the battalion commanders, they just were left with no choice. Um, they had to withdraw, again, uh, their troops behind Gravenstoffel Ridge, um, to which they completely retired as British replacements filled their subsequent positions. So really, this largely marks the end of Canada's involvement in the Second Battle of Ypres, but with a few minor exceptions. Yeah, those minor exceptions are the Battle of Fresenberg and the Battle of Belleward, which is really minimal compared to the last, how long did we just talk? <laughs> those last two battles. <laughs> so these ones are going to be pretty small. So on May 8th, there was a violent German bombardment between Mousetrap Farm and Fresenberg. The Princess Pats were there on the far left flank of a line along Bellward Ridge, which is a few hundred meters west of Fresenberg. You're going to have to look at a map for that one. Um, yes, we highly recommend you have a map in front of you. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be real important for this whole battle. Um, the Canadians were the closest to the heaviest point of the attack, and they were able to successfully fend off two of the assaults, but unfortunately the third broke through. And they suffered almost 400 casualties before they called in re reinforcements and they were relieved. And at the end of the day, they were left with 150 men and four officers. The towns of Fresenberg and Verlorenbach fell. Uh, the Princess Pat still hold this engagement with the highest of honors. And they still use the unofficial motto, holding up the damn line. <laughs> <laughs> the battle lasted until May 13th, but since the Princess Pats were able to be relieved, uh, they formed a composite unit with the 4th King's Royal Rifles for the last few days of the, the battle. For this, the Princess Pats were given the battle honor, which means that the battle was approved to for emblazonment on the regimental colors. Um, I read that after this battle, actually, this is right back to where Ashley was complaining back there. Um, I heard that it was after this battle that they completely gave up on their Ross rifles and they adopted the Enfield, the Lee Enfields as their own. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because they were completely crappy for consistent fighting. And I read the same thing that they would jam up and they had to kick it with the heel of their boots. And if you want to hear more about the Ross rifle, go back to our first episode if you haven't listened to it and listen to Ashley's rant on <laughs> Sam Hughes. <laughs> because he was the Minister of Militia and Defense and the ri Ross rifle is basically his fault. <laughs> um, so they, uh, they give up their Ross rifles and they have their Enfields from now on. I also heard though that the Princess Pat specifically had ditched their Ross rifles after Salisbury Plain. So I'm not quite sure which one is accurate. Um, mm. But a lot of them actually preferred, a lot of, not even just the Princess Pats, but everybody preferred the Enfields or even the German Mauser instead. And they would take 
rifles off of dead bodies. So they didn't have to use those damn Ross rifles. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> so the final battle of the Second Battle of Ypres was the Battle of Belouard. And on May 24th, the Germans released another assault of chlorine gas on the Allies. And it was aimed at Shell Trap Farm. Shell Trap. I feel like that's Mouse Trap Farm. Instead, I have in my notes Shell Trap. I'm going to have to check that. <laughs> we'll, let you, we'll let you know if there was an error. Yeah. There's so many farms in there. I don't know which one is which. Oh, I had a farm in mine too, but I didn't even bother. <laughs> <laughs> There's the area to the northwest is basically where we're talking about. So <laughs> Captain Thomas Leahy of the 2nd Royal Dublin Fusiliers reported that their CO, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Loveband, suspected a gas attack and had warned all the company officers. And later the Germans threw up red lights over their trench, which would signal the gas release like we had heard from way back when August Jaeger, that there would that, that would be the release. And the Princess Pats for this battle were just held in reserve and the Germans were able to take Belward Ridge and Mousetrap Farm. So that marks the end of that intense battle of the Second Battle of Ypres. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the aftermath. Now, the Second Battle of Ypres itself continued until May 25th, but the height of the battle happened within those first three days. Now, by April 26th, enough British and French reinforcements had arrived to expel any further German advances. But more than 6,500 Canadians had been killed, captured, or wounded. Now, this is considered the first real battle for the Canadians, but they did establish themselves as a formidable and well-respected force. Now, as we've already talked about, like the Second Battle of Ypres was really the dawn of chemical warfare as we know it today. In future battles, chlorine gas, of course, amongst others, would be used by both the German and Allied forces, and that includes the Canadians. Now, the Germans had justified their actions by saying that because the gas wasn't released via a projectile, they hadn't technically breached the Hague Agreement. Plus, they kind of pointed the finger at the French, saying, you know, they were the first ones to use it, not us. Um, But, of course, the Germans lost the war, um, so they took the blame for introducing chemical weapons. History's written by the victors, right? Of course, of course. And um, through the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was prohibited from manufacturing or importing asphyxiating, poisonous, or other gases. Now, in the 1925 Geneva Protocol, the international community further reinforced the prohibition of chemical and biological weapons, which again was signed by Germany, France, and Britain, But of course, World War II rolls around and you know how that story goes. So that is the end of our episode on the Second Battle of Ypres. And if, in case if you've listened to the John McCrae episode, um, we do reference this battle quite a bit. This is where John first served. Um, This is where he got his fame. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. In a really kind of morbid way. But yes, yeah. yeah. But those are where the hospital bunkers, um, for example, would have been. Yeah, my husband was actually a little <laughs> miffed at me after he listened to that episode because he's like, what happened to Bonfire? <laughs> <laughs> well, Bonfire has a Facebook page. He should go follow him. <laughs> That's right. But if you were like my husband and want to know, Bonfire was just fine. His buddies, um, General Morrison, made sure to find him a good farm. So he was retired from the war. Um, We don't have a lot of other information than that, but Bonfire was okay. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that Bonfire survived. So don't worry. (laughs) Aw, poor Bonfire. I know. So what do we have going on for our next episode, Shauna? Oh, God, I I don't know. (laughs) You should know. (laughs) I don't. Well, for our listeners, (laughs) 
we will be talking about the Battle of Festivere. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, Festivere and Givenchy, right? Uh, yes, yeah. There's uh, a but- lot of battles to remember the order that they came in, okay? <laughs> That's right. Um, and then there'll be a mini so that we drop um, in between. So I, just another clarity point. Somebody asked me, well, what is like S1M1? What does that stand for? And that's, that means it's season one, mini-sode one. And our full-length episodes will be S1E1, for example. So, And they'll all show up in order on your podcatcher, so it shouldn't be too confusing. That's right. Uh, so please check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Um, or for more information, check out our website at whataboutthecanadians.com, Instagram, or Facebook. Catch us next time, and we'll be following the Canadians through more of World War One. 